and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is your favorite podcast. If it's not your favorite podcast, A, get better taste. This podcast is amazing. And B, you're legally not allowed to listen anymore. So I'm sorry. Goodbye, audience. Unless we're your favorite podcast, in which case, thanks for staying with us. We appreciate your support. Please stay anyway. We need the listeners. <laughs> They're already gone, AJ. They're already gone. You, you've, you've lost them. You, you had your chance. You missed it. But now we only have the true fans left. There's something to be said for that. <laughs> this is a podcast about board game design and thinking about board games and kissing board games and taking board games to the movies and taking them back to your place, doing unspeakable things with board games. <laughs> and then the next morning, leaving the board game, never calling the board game again, uh, dodging the board game's calls. Peter, we're trying to keep the clean rating here. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I skipped over the middle part. AJ, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about brain chemistry, the bedrock of fun. This is a topic that we teased in our very first episode. Which is suitable for our very last episode. Yeah, we were going to wait until the end to tell you, but this is it. So I hope you've enjoyed it. <laughs> Goodbye forever. Now, you are obsessed with brain chemistry, if, I, if I'm remembering this correctly. I think similar to you, I'll get hyper-focused on a thing, I'll get really excited about that thing, and I'll just dive really deep into it, and I'll get really immersed in that thing. And that was the case with brain chemistry. I got onto this because I was trying to figure out the underlying motivations behind certain actions. Like, someone would say the ambiguous, oh, it's fun, and it's like, well... What is fun and why is that fun to one person and not to another? And I really want to get to grips and understand that because we can treat the symptoms, but I want to understand the disease, if that makes any sense. I would have said cause, but yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that does sound more appealing. It's sort of like if you really want to understand why this works, you have to like start going to the molecular level in some cases. Or like if you understand why your computer's crashing, you have to kind of dive into the code. That's what you're doing. You're diving into the code of people having fun. Exactly. I've had this conversation with a number of different people at this point, and some people don't think it's super valuable. And I guess we'll see by the end of the episode if you agree with them. But I think that it becomes more valuable the more you want to innovate. If you want to just make another deck builder and use the Dominion template, that's fine. You can do that. And you're going to come out with a pretty serviceable game at minimum. But if you want to really try and do something unique and understand why it's going to work or why it's not working at a fundamental level, then I think this type of thing can help. So for instance, a favorite of game designers, because don't we love to be clever, is deck deconstruction, not deck construction. So for context, deck builders is a very common genre, a very amazing genre. It's really fun to do. You, everyone starts with the same cards. You customize your deck. You keep reusing the cards again and again until you've built this really wonderful engine around it. And so a designer's natural response is like, ah, well, what if I, being a tricky dicky, did the opposite of that and made a deck deconstruction game? Instead of a deck builder, it's a deck unbuilder. Exactly. And we'll go into why that is a little bit later, why one is fun and one is generally speaking not, but that sort of frames the conversation a little bit. And just before we dive in a little bit more context, I have put more research into this episode than all of our other episodes combined. That's why it's taken so long to release this. You know the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? I am at the bottom of the first valley where I'm like, I know that there's so much to the brain that I don't understand, but I do believe I have a strong enough grip on things to be able to discuss this here accurately and to present useful information. And I do have a friend who's uh, just about to finish their psych degree and he has fact checked me and I've gone back and forth with him a few times. He sent me a whole bunch of articles. I could put all the links into the show notes, but it will be like 30 links. Put a link to a page that has all the links. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> so let's start with you are not a brain chemist. You are not a psychologist. You're just an enthusiastic amateur. 
Yes. <laughs> so don't quote this in your dissertations. Yes. And I recommend listening to the next two episodes of Fun Problems so that you can hear follow up to this episode in case my friend listens to it and says, whoa, AJ, you got this thing wrong. I will be going back and reassessing it. It's going to be difficult because this is the last episode <laughs> of Fun Problems ever. Please don't leave me. So what is a brain? Okay. I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> the way I'm going to frame this conversation is on the feel good chemicals in the brain and basically how those correlate to fun and how we can use them to generate fun. I think that's a reasonable scope for this conversation and already it might be running a bit long. So the two that spring to mind for me would be endorphins and dopamine. Yep, let's start off with the easy one. Let's start off with endorphins. Peter, what do you know about endorphins? They are endangered. You get to you know that's endorphin safe. They go <laughs> Flipper, I think Flipper's a very famous endorphin. I haven't heard every joke you've ever made, but that's on my short list for worst ever. <laughs> I know a little. I'm, I'm a complete rube when it comes to this topic. So I, I know that they are a feel-good chemical that you get from exercise. Yes. So the things that trigger endorphins are exercise, extreme pain, stress, sex. A significant physical exertion is the way to think about it. So there's a lot of things that can trigger smaller amounts of endorphins, like a big hearty belly laugh is going to release endorphins that actually moves your body enough. It gets things moving around. But generally speaking, we're not going to see or talk about endorphins in the context of board games. I'm remembering stuff as we talk. Endorphins are like what the body releases to help you not suffer, basically, like from pain. And unless you're playing a board game real weird, you probably shouldn't be experiencing physical pain. Yeah, and you can get a release from stress as well. But again, from my understanding, it's very limited in what we're talking about here. All right. So, Peter, what do you know about dopamine? So I want to say dopamine is what's released by Skinner boxes, like by treats. When you get a treat, that releases dopamine. That's what everybody thinks of dopamine, of just you get a reward, you feel good. That's the common layman's understanding of dopamine. I think a way to frame the conversation about all these chemicals and stuff is in their biological purpose. So the point of these chemicals is to encourage behavior that is useful for life. These are things that are going to protect you from danger. They're going to incentivize the behavior that life in general would want. They're the brain's victory points. <laughs> yeah, that's how it relates to board games. There's no other way. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, if you want players to do a thing, sprinkle victory points onto it and they will. If you want an animal to do a thing, sprinkle positive brain chemicals and they will. I often think about this in the context of people getting frustrated. They're like, why is sugar so... Why does it make me so happy when it's so bad for me? Evolution really messed up. And like, <laughs> if you were designing a dumb animal, which is where humans came from, if you're designing a, an animal that like you could only control by chemicals and you made one that got positive chemicals from eating calories and one that didn't and came back in a year, <laughs> one of those animals would be dead. <laughs> yep. So for dopamine specifically, there's two major functions here. There's the anticipation and the learning. So the anticipation is like you want or you think you're about to get something that is useful. And basically the chemical goes off to drive you towards completing the thing. And then the learning is that dopamine, its role can be switched from perception to forming neural pathways or helping to reinforce neural pathways by a chemical when you get your rewards. So the idea here is dopamine can drive you to do a thing and then you do the thing and it's like, yes, I want you to do that thing more. Let's cement that in your brain that that is a good thing to do. And this is why addiction can be so hard to break because your neural pathways are designed 
from doing that so many times, literally designed to want you to do that thing and to make it easy and comfortable for you to do that thing over and over again. And that's why it can be so hard to break a habit and to find new things that you like. Literally designed gets us into a whole intelligent design conversation that I don't think we want to, but uh, I understand what you mean. What I mean by designed is you are the designer. If you choose to do something over and over again, it's going to form that pathway. You have designed it by reinforcing that in your brain. Oh, oh, I see. Gotcha. So for behavior patterns, that's why it can be so difficult. And pro tip, a way to get out of a bad habit and to encourage something else is to tie a reward to that behavior that you want to encourage in yourself. I'm not even close to kidding when I say like, I think of all this stuff in terms of victory points. Being a board game designer, because I've been doing this for almost 10 years now. Not professionally, but like I started board game designing about 10 years ago and it shapes the way that I look at every system, everything is like incentives and like, this is partially why this will be a whole, whole other episode sometime. This is why I'm so obsessed with board games that don't have victory points because they are such a, not clumsy, they're such an obvious way to steer player behavior. I'm so interested in what you can do without resorting to that. <laughs> you want to get like a little bit more nuance and romance into it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not a, a creed against victory points. I'm just fascinated by like, if you want a kid to do something, you give them chocolate and they will do the thing and they will get chocolate. If you want to get a kid to do something without chocolate, then you've got a weird little interesting challenge on your hands. That's what's interesting to me where kids are players and victory points are chocolate. Gotcha. Yeah. So one way to think about dopamine and the way that it does this is with an example of how it works in a very simple animal. So let's say that we take a slug and the slug has basically a very rudimentary program in its brain. It's hungry, it wants to eat, so it looks around in the surrounding area for food. Doesn't find food, dopamine levels are dropping, it leaves the area to forge for more food, and the dopamine builds up the anticipation as it finds it, and now, okay, it's found food, it can stay there and keep exploiting the food, rinse and repeat, and that's basically the life cycle of the slug, until, you know, you get into reproduction, stuff like that. One thing to think about with this that's really, really important is the idea of when the trigger happens for the dopamine, because that's really what we care about, right? We care about when the rewards are going to go off, when the players are going to feel good. So there's two big moments for it, but in general, it's all throughout the anticipation phase. That's really what you want to drive home. The dopamine peak occurs during the earliest reliable predictor of the behavior. So for instance, in a positive example, it's like a monkey sees a banana on a tree. It's like, oh, I've eaten those before. If I go up there, I'm going to get a banana. That excites it a lot. So the seeing is the earliest point. That's what you're saying. Yes, but that can change. As you mentioned, there's the Pavlovian response. So if you ding a bell at the same time you give someone a treat, then they're going to associate the bell with the treat. Then if you ding the bell, they're going to, in their brain, say, ooh, I always hear the bell and then get a treat. They're not as excited at the treat as they are at the bell because they know that that means the treat is coming. So whenever the earliest predictor is, the earliest thing that you associate with the good thing, that's when players are going to get excited. This actually ties into heuristics and rubrics, which we talk about a lot, where if your game is counterintuitive to other games, let's say someone plays a lot of worker placement games and they know that getting more workers is a good thing in worker placement games. If your game punishes you for getting more workers, then that's going to be counterintuitive. And so they're going to get a new worker. They're going to get that dopamine hit because they've played enough of these games to be like, ah, that means I am winning. But then they don't win. And it's this mismatch between brain chemistry and results. Absolutely. What you want is to bring them cognitive ease. You want the things to resonate with players that they already know from other games. 
And whenever you try to be clever, you have to make sure that you're clever in a way that's going to resonate, if not with the expectation they have from other board games, resonate with some other underlying factor in their brains. That makes sense? Yeah. Let's use a very old school board game and a very heteronormative example, just for simplicity. In the game of life, you get more points if your character gets married. This is because we understand as a society, and again, heteronormative, blah, 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 but just just run with me for this for now, that getting married is good. That is a thing that humans in society should aspire to. So the game was like, you got married and that loses you 800 points. Players are going to be like, well, hang on, this, this doesn't connect with my understanding of reality. Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, that's exactly it. To use a more gamey example, if you're making a game for a very casual audience and it has a six-sided die in it, you want six to be good and one to be bad. Yep, I think that there are examples where you can turn that on its head without being too disruptive, but that general line of thinking, definitely. Absolutely right. Cool. I think maybe a better example would be a bugbear of yours. If you have dice in your game and you don't get to roll them, if you have like D6s that use for tracking. Yes. That's a great example. Yeah, that frustrates me so much. To give another example here, dopamine is always tied in blame and speak to rewards, but it can also be a warning system. An animal falls off a cliff, then the next time they get close to a cliff, they'll actually get some dopamine in their system as like a warning system. It's like, hey, hey, it's the anticipation of something negative and because the brain doesn't sort of differentiate between the positive or the negative. And so it's like, oh, this is an event that you need to really cement in your understanding. Here's the thing. Remember that this happened. Remember that this is coming up. Won't that encourage the animal to jump off a cliff? So it's not dopamine being released to say like, go towards it. It's being released to encourage not going towards it. So this might be above your pay grade, but is this why people like horror films? So I think so. This is something I was talking with him about and also why people can get into the negative feedback loops with depression and stuff. You know how people can, I don't want to be mean here, but like some people can sort of get into the victim mentality and right. and sort of like fetishize their own sadness, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Without being reductive, obviously mental health is complicated, but yeah, I, I, know, I know what you mean. Yeah. And this whole discussion, remember I said dopamine is always in your system or virtually always in your system. When dopamine isn't in your system, that's when you have depression. You have no motivation for any behavior. A slightly reductive way of looking at that. The victory points have been taken away and you don't know what to do. Or you're not, you're not rewarded for doing anything. Exactly. And similarly, drug users who are using drugs that are opioids, you know, that give you the positive feelings, that messes up your internal reward system because you get the biggest reward you've ever gotten from the drugs and then your body metabolizes and gets used to it. And then what happens is your body gets used to the higher amount, so it doesn't produce as much on its own. And that means it's very hard to motivate yourself to do anything. Yeah. I just started on testosterone treatment and I asked the doctor, what happens if I stop taking it? He said, well, for the first three weeks, your testosterone will be lower than it is now because you will not be used to producing it because you're just injecting it every week. And so after that, it'll adjust. But that, that, that's roughly what's happening with dopamine. Yeah. So similarly, a major cause of ADD is dopamine deficiency. The reason why people think that that has to do with attention deficit is because it's hard to focus on the thing that doesn't give you dopamine when you're already low on it. So it's very exhausting, irritating to try and focus on this thing that isn't producing dopamine when right beside you, you've got your phone that is a dopamine machine. <laughs> yeah, Facebook and, and social media companies literally have departments dedicated, or video game companies as well, dedicated to working out how to get you as much dopamine as possible, which is sort of what we're doing on this podcast. So <laughs> can't, can't point fingers too much. <laughs> and that's exactly it, right? Is by looking at someone with a dopamine deficiency, we can say, okay, what are the things that they desperately want to do? Well, those are the things that we can just encourage in everyone. It's kind of like the accessibility thing, right? You make a divot in the sidewalk so that wheelchairs can get up it. And that accessibility for that specific audience 
is also just useful for everyone because, you know, people who have strollers or, you know, have deliveries on wheels or whatever. You're less likely to stumble even. Exactly. And so it's the same thing here where if we make it more appealing to people on the extreme, then it by definition makes it easier for everyone else. And rather than saying like we're designing for people with ADD, it's more like we're able to see more clearly these principles in people with ADD. And by the way, I self-diagnose as having ADD, not trying to speak about people with that in the abstract or anything. So ADD is a dopamine deficiency. Primarily. Again, not to be reductive. We are being reductive. We we are being okay. reductive. To be reductive, ADD <laughs> is a dopamine deficiency. And so why... So you're saying the phone is just such a supercharged dopamine provider that that works even when nothing else does. So think of it this way. When someone doesn't have dopamine in their system generally, the highs feel so much more high. In fact, people with ADD are way more likely to be addicted to things in general because being able to get the high that they need from everyday life that they can't, they go very directly to the things that do generate it. And so it's less that phones are super good about it and more just the fact that they're desperate for it. But phones are really, really good at generating dopamine because you can get small reward hits from, let's say your thing is beautiful landscapes, right? You have a Tumblr and all the Tumblr is is gorgeous landscapes. You just scroll, scroll, scroll. You get to see, ooh, that's nice. Ooh, that's nice. Ooh, that's nice. Infinitely long. Now, one thing to note is that the dopamine hits from things like that are generally very low, which is why if you have a dopamine deficiency, oftentimes you'll get people who get locked into a cycle of not having the energy, not having the motivation, not having the dopamine to be able to motivate themselves to do things. So they'll do the things that get them tiny little hits. And something that I just learned recently, again, I was researching this for my own personal benefit, is that you need to be cognizant of what gives you lots of dopamine versus what gives you a little dopamine. Because if you have like dopamine snacks, like little tiny hits from something, then that doesn't actually get you out of the cycle. That just continues you being stuck in that state of looking at your phone forever. I was going to say, it'd be like having an infinite bag of chips next to you. You're never going to get up and make a meal. Exactly. Whereas you need to know the things that generate lots of dopamine to get you out of those cycles. Now that's a bit of the context of the board game conversation, so I'll pull it back in, but I did think it was worth bringing up. I'm a little curious about hyperfocus, if this ties in. It does, totally. Hyperfocus is exactly this, actually. You nailed it. Hyperfocus is when something is generating you dopamine and you just never stop. So for me, sometimes I'll be working and I'll just work for 12 hours solid. I won't even stop to eat even though I'm hungry because I'm just so focused on the thing, because it keeps delivering me dopamine. And that could be work, or it could be, you know, video games or whatever. Honestly, it's podcast editing for me or video editing. Hmm. It's like one of the activities that I can just get locked into. And I've done it for like 20 hours straight before, because it's just <laughs> like, I get dopamine from solving puzzles and editing is just solving a bunch of tiny puzzles. <laughs> Similarly, board game prototyping digitally, I can do that for like eight hours without even noticing because every new thing is just a little puzzle to solve and then you solve it and it feels good and you go on to the next one and accomplishment. I get, I get massive dopamine out of just finishing things and accomplishing things. That brings up a good point, which is that dopamine metabolizes quickly. So it doesn't matter if you get a huge hit, even a huge hit of dopamine won't last that long. What you want is a bunch of little hits. Regardless of what it is, you want the little hits. And if you can break things up into smaller objectives or you can break things up into smaller rewards and give them more often, that's going to feel a lot better than building up to a big one. That's interesting. This is a, this is a problem that comes up a lot in my board game designs, honestly. like I'm not forcing the conversation. This is a, a serious issue where I like those big moments in games where you like finish a thing. So 
I've been told in the past, and again, this is largely related to me trying not to use victory points too. Like victory points, this is going to sound so dumb, but victory points are little dopamine providers. We just like getting victory points. They make us happy because that's how you win the game, I guess. And that makes you happy. Without them, a lot of games without victory points will have like three or four quote unquote victory points, like conditions to win the game. And if you complete those three or four victory conditions, then you win in the place of victory points. And so my games will be like, okay, work for a long time, get a thing. Then work for a long time, get a thing. Then work for a long time, get a thing. And the complaint I always get is like, okay, cool. But while I'm not getting the thing, it feels like a slog or straight after I get the thing. And this is sort of what you're talking about. Like straight after getting a Shard and Agriculturist or a Robot Guild in Robotopia, if the game is designed well, which early on they're not, it's like, I've done that thing. Now what? Ugh, I have to start this journey again. I don't want to do that. Yeah, the things of this are Stonemaier games, right? They really understand how to make the games really fast-paced, really shorten the time between getting things. And you get so many things. Yeah, give you treats and goodies every turn. We've mentioned before in the past crafting systems in games, and we briefly hinted at why they're so ubiquitous. And the reason why is because you constantly get things. And those things you can turn into other things. So you open a chest and it's full of... A whole bunch of garbage. Ah, so exciting, but I didn't quite get it. Then you open another chest and oh boy, there was a thing in here. And all the way you're like, you're getting all this stuff you're, you're building up and you know what you're working towards. You're like, I'm going to take this piece of wood in this pipe and all these parts and somehow I'm going to make a rifle out of it. And then at the end of that, you've got a rifle and it's big and exciting. And you're talking ubiquitous in video games here, not board games. Well, yes, but they are definitely creeping in with... A lot of strength in uh, in board games, for sure. Well, I mean, we'd consider the Settlers of Catan-based mechanism a crafting system. A set collection, but it's the same end result. You know what I mean? Like, no, but it's the same end result. What's the difference? So I was going to come to this later. So set collection is essentially crafting, right? It's you get all the resources and then you cash them in. And they do the exact same thing with dopamine, which is you get all these things. Yeah, I got this thing. I got this thing. Then you get all the things together. And then you pay them all out. And that thing that you've been working towards, you get. And it feels really good. And it's the same exact thing with crafting systems. Oh, so you're saying there isn't a difference. I'm saying there isn't a difference from a dopamine perspective or like often mechanically. Oh, yeah. Cool. I'll get to that in a little bit, though, into a little bit more detail. So I've just got a bunch of notes here about ways to generate dopamine, things that are common in games that generate dopamine to think about how to best maximize it. So an obvious one is from video games more predominantly but that's getting XP and getting closer and closer to leveling up. So something like Gloomhaven, where you've got a whole bunch of new goodies that you get when you level up and you get to see, I got a bit closer, I got a bit closer, and then you finally nail it and then you get it. Now, Gloomhaven's a pretty slow paced game. And like we just said, I actually think it would have benefited from leveling up faster and from getting you those rewards instead of like every, I don't know, <laughs> three or four <laughs> scenarios. Yeah, I think Gloomhaven could have done a lot better than it did. <laughs> really, really a failure of a game. I think it's a bit embarrassed <laughs> by how, uh, how poorly it did. Well, I'm actually going to give it as a bunch of examples for ways that it could have generated more dopamine. And like, obviously it's a successful game. I'm not saying it's a bad game, but what I'm saying is it doesn't maximize what I think its total potential could have been on this particular axis, right? And that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to say, how can we tweak these systems slightly to make them a bit better, a little bit more dopamine being generated from these actions. So I believe in Gloomhaven, it has trackers in the newer version of it where you rotate it. And that gives you that satisfying feeling of like you get to see yourself going closer and closer to it. The tactile sensation is satisfying or just the advancement? The advancement in general, but like the more emphasis you can put on it, like making players physically do that is a good thing. If there was like one game master, for instance, who just tracked the XP on a sheet, 
and nobody else did that, that would be a very different feel than you gain to see yourself ticking up on your player board, right? Um, so that's something it that does well. Right. And that, that's the anticipation thing that you're talking about. Exactly. That's yeah. like the earliest moment of seeing the reward. Mm-hmm. Another great example of that is Too Many Bones. Have you played that game? No. So in that game, when you get a chest, it's not like open the chest and see what you get. You get handed a card. And on that card, there's three different locks on it. And you have to play a mini game to break through the locks. And you can't just like do it all at once, generally speaking. You have to like work towards it. And so you get to have the fun of the progress of working towards that thing. And it might take you, you know, a, a few minutes or like a scenario or two. And that whole time you build up closer and closer to being able to unlock that thing. And as soon as you get that thing, it's going to feel so much better because you had that build up for it. Interesting. It's foreplay. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, though, totally. That's why foreplay is a thing. <laughs> I guess this is the reason I need to start doing foreplay. Fine. <laughs> Be excited for Peter's next game. <laughs> <laughs> Slash relationship. <laughs> but this can be done in a lot of different ways. The anticipation. So it could just be from watching a well-laid plan come together in Twilight Imperium where you spent a literal hour putting together all the position to be able to take over someone's plan at just the right moment. If you have a trick-taking game, right, where you look at your hand of cards and some of the cards are just objectively the best, right? Like, oh, this is the highest card in this hand or this card has a superpower. You look at your hand and then what happens? You look at your hand, you reorganize the cards, and then slowly over the course of the round, people play out the hand. And typically you don't play your big power card immediately. And so what happens there is you get to have the anticipation of getting to play a card. You see the card and you're like, oh boy, I got this powerful card. And then multiple hands go. And then the moment where everything lines up and you're like, yeah, now I get to throw it down. Even that builds up the anticipation. So if you can show players the thing that they're going to get or hint at how cool something is going to be, it can get them excited for when they get to use it. I might've told this story before. I was in Florida playing a prototype that was like a bluffing, backstabby sort of prototype. And you would give other players gifts. So on my turn, I might be like, hey, AJ, here's a gift. It'd be a face down card that went in front of you. And in the prototype, you would then like finish the round. So there'd be like a dozen gifts going out. And then you'd flip all the cards in front of you and reveal. And it was a total dud in terms of like feeling. Like I, on the first turn, I might give you a trap card. And then it doesn't actually activate until, you know, 10 cards later at the end of the round when you flip all your cards and you're like, and I got 25 victory points and two trap cards. And that sort of like removes the anticipation because like I might be anticipating, but by the time it comes, it's been too late. Like I want to see you do it and like have it in front of you. And Cockroach Poker is a great example. In Cockroach Poker, you'll play a card in front of someone and announce that it is a certain thing. And they can either say, no, it's not and flip it. And you blow up if it's not, and they blow up if it is. Or they can accept it, look at it and pass it on to someone else and say what it is. And so the first lie can be continued like bouncing around the entire table of eight people and the tension just builds and builds and builds because it's the active focus. Whereas in this Florida game I'm talking about, you would do like, haha, I'm going to do something tricky and then it would be out of sight, out of mind. And that doesn't allow the anticipation to build. Mm -hmm. And then the other example that really springs to mind is diplomacy, where you physically write down your order. Yeah, that's a great example. Because in diplomacy, you spend the round wheeling and dealing and then you write down the orders and you submit them. And then if you play the game, in my opinion, the best way, you come back once a week to resolve the orders. <laughs> but even if you don't, there's still time between the rounds where your orders sit there and you're like, oh man, did this person betray me? Oh man, am I going to get away with this? Oh man, is this going to work or, or whatever? So I guess as game designers to maximize this source of dopamine, 
you want to have anticipation in a way that's active and like part of the game so tapestry you get those things and every time you refresh you know you move it up one that gives you a different bonus and it's there in front of you the whole time the technologies or whatever they are yeah i think another good example this is like tech trees right you get to see the tech trees and you get to say oh man i can't wait until six hours from now in twilight period when i get to use this war sign <laughs> that i'm building the thing is is giving players something to look forward to is really useful but also having unpredictability is useful. There's a famous talk by J.J. Abrams called The Mystery Box. I assume that you've heard this? Yeah, yeah. He's talking about the fact that if you give the audience a box and say, we don't know what's in it, then they want to know what's in it. And he's been accused as a screenwriter of writing too many mystery boxes, not enough box contents. Yeah, and that mystery box concept is exactly why legacy games work. You are excited about what could possibly be in the box because of the dopamine. And then you finally get to open it, you get to see, and then you get to play with the new toys. I started replaying Charterstone the other day. And without that mystery box element, you really feel the lack of anticipation. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to point out a couple things talking about video games here is if you look at chests or loot boxes or digital booster packs, what happens when you open those in, in digital games? They always take a couple seconds to whir and buzz and explode in huge dramatic fashion. And that's because that builds up the excitement. If they just opened instantly for you, it wouldn't be fun. You'd never walk into a casino and press a button and have it spit out a sheet that just tells you what it is. No, they take a while. They spin the lights. I've been told that that light spinning and all that in casinos i'm thinking of poker machines specifically is because your brain is trying to find a pattern and the more like information you can throw at the brain pattern finding side just goes on overdrive and is like oh ah oh there's a oh oh and then i won okay so there must be a pattern here let's go again so i can work out this pattern that makes a lot of sense i wasn't trying to link specifically the lights to the dopamine but that makes sense as like the general pattern recognition that the brain loves to do the ritual in charlie and the chocolate factory when he gets a chocolate bar <laughs> yeah one of my favorite newsletters is The Whippet, which I really recommend you should check it out. It's amazing. McKinley, who's the writer, was talking about the fact that if you have a ritual around your favorite food, that food tastes better to you. So like if you have a favorite meal, just develop a ritual and human brains work in such a way that I suspect it's exactly what you're talking about. It's the dopamine. Even though it's going to be the same shepherd's pie that I have every week, the fact that I'm doing this first and then cutting up the whatever in this way and unwrapping it this way and setting the table in this way, all of that builds the anticipation, which makes me enjoy the meal more. That's exactly right. So with the dopamine, remember, it's the earliest predictor of the reward. Yeah. So it's, oh, I know that when I lay out this placemat, that means this meal is coming. That starts the dopamine coming earlier and makes you enjoy it more, like you said. Fascinating. This is really interesting. So you said with a having a ritual for the food, same thing with people taking pictures of their food for Instagram or whatever. Taking that few extra seconds, take the picture, makes you have to anticipate. You take the picture and you're like, oh, it does look good. And then I'm going to put the right filter on. All that time is just building up the feel goods. Huh, that's really cool. So how can board game designers utilize that? I think it's all about knowing how to create the triggers so if you have upkeep and then you get the reward, it's like that upkeep moment is when you're going to know the reward is coming. Oh yeah, Feast for Odin. Feast for Odin has 12 steps every round. And that sounds like a lot, but they really are delightful. Like they became a little ritual when I was playing a lot of Feast for Odin. So similarly, I think I was talking with Jeff Frazier about this at one point. There was a game he was talking about where when you take actions over the course of the round, you basically create a pool of resources. You don't get them yet. They sit over there. And so the whole round you build up, build up, build up. And then at the end of the round, it's like, okay, now take all your toys and you get to scoop them all up. That's a great way of building the anticipation. 
That does sound fun. And so I think things like that, having noticeable triggers, creating that Pavlovian response of, oh, I know X happened, which means Y is going to happen. This is often referred to as play patterns as well. To break down play patterns, it's basically like a common move would be in chess, you move out a pawn and then that lets you move out the queen so you can be aggressive with the queen, you know, stuff like that. And so if you have a play pattern, that is common in your game, you might think, oh, I don't want players doing the same thing every time. And that's true. But if the play pattern weaves into the larger structure of the game, it's not like the first two turns are scripted, but this particular combination of cards are scripted or whatever, that can create the Pavlovian response because, oh, I play the make the enemy vulnerable attack and now I can follow up with the big haymaker attack, right? And of course you want variants in there, but that's why combos are so satisfying to pull off because it makes you feel clever that you got two things together, but also when you play the first one, you know that the second one is coming and it's going to do something great that uses it effectively. That's so interesting. So Robotopia, which is coming to Kickstarter tomorrow, check it out, (laughs) has action cards. And the action cards are very, very powerful, but they have conditions. So I just watched Rado's video, so I'll use the one that he had, which is that he has a card that when you play a red robot, instead of activating the two spaces it touches once, you have to activate them three times. Super powerful, just a really fun card to play because you're like, I do everything three times as much as I normally would. But in order to do it, you have to have a red robot. In order to get a red robot, you have to have a red generator. And so you end up like, ah, I got this action card. So now I need to get a red generator. And the red generator will let me do that. That's sort of what you're talking about, where like getting to the really cool thing requires a bit of setup. A is a balancing thing. You got to balance the game to make sure you can't just do all the powerful stuff every turn. But even beyond that, the setup you're suggesting is a dopamine provider. Yes, exactly. Interesting. I find it really useful to be conscious of this stuff. I'm a very analytical designer. It's not a brag. I wish I was intuitive in many ways because I wouldn't have to make mistakes in order to understand why something's good. But <laughs> the more tools I have in my little toolbox, the more useful it is. So I found this kind of stuff really valuable. And that exact example, I've been playing a bunch of Robotopia recently as well. Big surprise. It's coming to Kickstarter soon. It has to be ready. And so I was playing and I discovered a really sweet combo where there's a guild tile that every time you mine, which means go to a certain space and get a resource, you basically get one extra resource. And the way that it was set up, there were two of those spaces together and the red robot can activate two spaces. So as soon as I saw that action card on the row, I was like, I have to get that card (laughs) because if I have that card, then I play the robot, I play the card, and then I get to activate both spaces three times and that triggers my guild power three times for each of them. It's just insane. (laughs) Not to go into Robotopia too much here because we're going to talk about that uh, next episode, but that was a really big feel-good moment and there's a whole bunch of those in the game that make you look for those moments that you can set up those really fun, powerful turns. It's interesting, this dopamine stuff, because we're not telling you anything new. We're just going one level behind the stuff that designers, even if they never use the word dopamine or brain chemicals in their life, are understanding. We're just sort of looking at the chemistry of it. Yes. And the reason why I think that this is valuable, because a lot of people would say, well, I can just look at the behavior and playtest a million times and figure it out. But this A lets you skip steps because it lets you understand you know, how to bake dopamine into your design and you'll be able to assess when it's not working more easily, but also you'll be able to make it more effective. We already gave Gloomhaven's example, let's give it again. A die is way more exciting than drawing from a deck of cards. In Gloomhaven, you essentially have a D20 that's represented by a deck of cards. And it needs to be that way. There's more abilities on the cards and it is exciting to upgrade the deck for sure. But when you draw a card, you're in full control and you can essentially do it instantly. Grab, look at it. Whereas if it was a D20, You have the fun of rolling the dice, the jingle in your hands, the bounce on the table. If every coin flip ended with the coin spinning on one side for a while before falling over, like those are the most exciting coin flips by far. Absolutely. You might think, well, there's no way to improve that design. 
Well, you know what I would consider is having tokens in a bag where you pull from a chit bag and yeah, you can still reach in there and pull it immediately. But most people put in their hand, jostle it about, look at the board, say, oh, that's the one I really want to pull and then pull it. Yeah, I always think of Quacks of Quedlingburg as the ultimate dopamine game. Like it's it's just it's just mm-hmm. a buffet of dopamine, like hit, 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 hit for like an hour straight. Yep, absolutely. So now I'd like to talk about feedback a little bit. Yeah, so I've got some notes. Uh... <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm making a joke about feedback. I, I got you. Okay. I'm just ruining your joke as per usual. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Uh, so I got feedback on how you took that feedback joke. <laughs> feedback is really, really, really important in dopamine. There was an, an experiment where a mouse was pressing a button that was hooked up to the pleasure center of its brain and would push it just nonstop, as you'd expect, right? You push it constantly and it constantly makes you feel good. When they added a one second delay, it dramatically reduced the amount that the mouse cared about pushing the button. The takeaway here is that anticipation is good, but the anticipation has to be tied into the actions you take. So this is sort of what we were talking about earlier with the Florida game, where you set something up, but then if the gratification is too delayed, it doesn't trigger the same response. Yeah, exactly. If you want to have a system where the results of your actions are delayed, that's okay, but they need to be directly tied to it. So we gave the example just a minute ago of when you take an action, it builds up a pool of resources, you immediately see the resources you're going to get, but then you wait until that cycle ends and then you get to actually use them. That type of thing is okay, but you need to be really aware of what that looks like. That's because it's present, right? That's sort of what I was trying to say earlier. Like it's actively in your face and you can anticipate it. Whereas if it goes away, I guess there's still anticipation of that, but it's, you know, knowing that you're going to go see a movie and having the ticket in your hand and getting to like play with it in excitement as a kid. I don't know if you're into movies I was versus your parents saying, hey, we're going to a movie later and never getting like the ticket and you forget about it until you get there. And you're like, oh yeah, the movie, that's right. It also removes the, the thunder from the move, right? If after someone makes a move, they have to sit there and wait 20 minutes of upkeep before the move actually resolves and they get to see the payoff from it. Like whether it succeeds or fails, that's a really exciting moment. You don't want to take away their thunder. Yeah, and I felt like this was one of the big weaknesses of Tapestry. So typically in a victory point game, you finish the game and everyone adds up their scores. And sort of as to what you were saying earlier, like if everyone adds up their own score, that's going to be more satisfying than if someone takes everyone's stuff, adds it up and everyone comes back later, right? Yep. The flaw of tapestry, I feel, is that people finish the game asynchronously. So I could finish the game half an hour before you do. I've heard cases of it being like 90 minutes or something like that. Let's say up to half an hour is a reasonable amount. If I finish the game half an hour before you do, in most situations, I'm not going to sit there and just watch you play the game and build up anticipation. I'm going to go off and do something else. I'll go off and go to my phone and something like that. So by the time I come back and actually find the final scores, I've lost that investment. Let's be careful with our terms here. You've lost the investment, absolutely. But also remember that dopamine gets released at the earliest predictor of the behavior. And so if the action that you take isn't tied to the result, not only do you lose the dopamine from that action itself, but it also means that you're not going to get it from repeat actions. We talked earlier about Catan having the recipe and you build towards it and you buy it. If those two actions were too disconnected, then you're not going to get the feel good from that. And it's not going to encourage you to do that again and again. I don't think it's any coincidence that both Monopoly and Catan, two of the most popular mass market games out there, both have set collection as a core element. It's because it rewards the behavior, it encourages people to remember it, and it incentivizes the behavior and feels good every time you go back to it. One of the things I love about doing podcasts, and maybe now that you do a podcast, this will make more sense to you. When you finish designing a board game, it comes out 
bare minimum nine months later, more likely two years. <laughs> Robotopia, I quote unquote finished the design 2019. It's coming to Kickstarter tomorrow, <laughs> which means it'll be out in retail 2022. It'll be like a full three years between where I finished the design and when it comes out. That Time You Killed Me, which comes out in two days time. All my games are coming out this week. But that one is actually coming to retail. That one also was basically finished in 2019. A podcast, you finish recording, you do the edit, and then you just hit launch and it's out in the world. And it's just such a world of difference. It's true. Like not only being able to just say, oh, it's done, but also like the feedback of people who have listened to it being like, oh, hey, here's my thoughts on it and all that. And also it's like not an opinion that you had two years ago, right? Right. Yeah. It's one of the reasons TikTok is so successful because you finish a TikTok, you put it up, you're immediately getting comments. <laughs> and that's also, by the way, why social media is so addictive because you make a post, immediately people start liking and commenting and that feels really good. So circling back to what we were just saying about dopamine encouraging the behavior of players, dopamine is critical for getting onto what's called a mastery cycle, which is basically just like learning, improving, learning, improving, and digging into the deeper and deeper layers of the game. And there's no real way to like on-ramp players into a mastery cycle. That's a very self-directed thing because someone could play the same game a thousand times and never improve at the game. It seems unlikely, but yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be mean, but you could be a home cook and cook a thousand roasts, but you don't ever like research how to improve. You just like follow the exact recipe you always have. And that happens with players too. Just because you do something a lot doesn't mean you're necessarily improving. Yeah, a more basic example is like brushing your teeth. I'm probably not any better at brushing my teeth than I was 10 years ago, despite the fact that I've done it once a week for 10 years. <laughs> so yeah, what dopamine does is it encourages the behavior to continue, it encourages you to keep going back to it. And it encourages you to dig deeper as you follow that path and that path sort of gets cemented in your mind. It allows you to say, okay, now that I'm doing this comfortable thing and I don't have to put mental effort into this, I don't have to use some of the cognitive load. It's not work anymore. Exactly. You get to focus on the other parts of the game. You get to start looking more closely at other things. It's like the first time you play a big heavy hero, you're not thinking of all the intricate strategies and the perfect efficiencies. You're just trying to wrap your head around the system. W. Eric Martin did a really good post. Did you read this on Board Game Geek the other day? No, I must have missed it. Really good post. It was about the rating system of Board Game Geek. And he was just talking about the fact that it doesn't do what some people want it to do and it can't do what some people want it to do, etc. But in the middle of the post, my favorite part was he was saying why he only likes games that are like half an hour. I can't remember the exact number. Let's say it was half an hour. Because he wants games that let him internalize the rules so quickly that he can just play the game he said he wants to internalize rules so quickly that they are just like walls and boundaries that he and his friends are playing within i just thought that was a really nice phrase yeah i like that a lot and i definitely have a lot of that myself i definitely trend toward more elegant games we like to say where there's a lighter structure to it in particular and i can just internalize the rules quickly and start playing the game the heavier games that you spend so much cognitive effort to be able to let the rule systems run on your brain take away from your ability to strategize to the same extent until you've played it a bunch and have internalized them all the same way that you would with a lighter game like that. I love that feeling of playing a heavy game a bunch until like Feast for Odin, I can just swim on that board. Like I don't have to think about any of the spaces. I don't have to think about any of the interactions. I'm just focused on like what I want to do and how can I get there? Well, Great Western Trail, very similar. It took me like 10 games to really wrap my head around that. But now I'm like, okay, what can I do with this hand? What can I do with these pieces? 
Mm-hmm. And those types of games, I just don't want to put the effort in. Like I played Great Western Trail once. I honestly did not fully get it. And I don't want to have to go back multiple times to be able to start playing the game. So I'm not really interested. It's so good. <laughs> Black Angel was the most egregious example of this. And actually, I think all of the negative things that I've said, like all the ways to not get dopamine into your game, I could say about Black Angel, where the results of your actions are disconnected enough that you don't get that feedback and you don't feel like you're getting the rewards from the actions because of all the different things that get in your way of being able to actually do them. And I think that's why the game didn't land with me was because I got like zero dopamine from that. And I'm particularly sensitive to that as someone with ADD. So let me try to explain this back to you to make sure I've understood. Mastery relates to dopamine in that once you've gotten good at something, your brain's like, ha, yes, keep doing that. Now that you're good at it, we want this behavior. Exactly. A game like, say, Mage Knight, where it's incredibly difficult to do anything, is that the mastery dopamine? Is that sort of what you're talking about? Like when you finally get something done? So I haven't played Mage Knight, but what I am saying is that the optimal way to have a game on-ramp you for dopamine is to have a system set up that immediately starts rewarding you. So that's where something like set collection comes in, because it's so easy to latch onto that and to get the dopamine rewards, the anticipation of completing it, getting lots of things, spending them, completing the thing. That feels really good. So if you can have a core gameplay loop that incorporates those types of easy, low-hanging fruit dopamine releases, then you can have a deeper system baked into it. Players are willing to spend the time to get to that point where they can start getting deep into the game because they're hooked on the initial dopamine cycle. They can now start to see the deeper mastery in the game because now that they have so fully internalized the simpler core actions that you take, now they can start devoting brain energy to the more complicated things. Does that make sense? I think so. Let me give you another example. Um, Do you know what I've gotten more messages about from this podcast than everything else put together? Oh, I'm worried. I don't know. (laughs) Baba is you. Really? Yeah, there are people who I had no idea listened to this podcast until they messaged me being like, hey, really good wreck. I love the game, which is great. I absolutely adore it. So in a particularly hard Baba is you puzzle, I would get stuck for like up to two hours. (laughs) And that whole time I'm playing it, I'm trying to do stuff and I'm trying, trying to try and try and try. And when I eventually get it, it's a big rush. Is that mastery dopamine or is that something else? That's something else. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about how you want to have the smaller hits if you can, because yes, people like you are going to stick with it. And as long as you make progress, that's sort of the key thing. If people are making progress at puzzle or at least feel like they're making progress, feel like they're getting closer, they're going to get those little dopamine hits. In a big complicated Baba Z puzzle, you might have like three or four breakthroughs where you're like, oh, I can do this with these pieces. And that gets me closer to... Or, or you might have a breakthrough that ends up not being it, but you're like, oh, I've never done this before. And what does this do? And it turns out to be completely relevant. There's one puzzle where I spent probably 40 minutes doing stuff that had nothing to do with the solution, which was really obvious. And all the other streamers solved it in literally like 10 seconds. But I still was like, oh, okay, this does this. Oh, and oh, maybe this is getting me closer. Right. Whereas if there was a puzzle that took you, say, the two hours that you just said, but you didn't feel like you're making progress at all, that still might be fine for you. But that is not an optimal flow of dopamine. And what we're talking about here is trying to maximize dopamine specifically, because that will get more people into it. The reason why I stopped playing Baba Is You is because I would get stuck, feel like I'm not making progress, and that would feel awful and i wouldn't be getting those dopamine hits as long as i was doing something that felt like it was progressing it'd feel good if that describes you search for bubba is hint it's a hint system for bubba is you so it doesn't give you the solution it just nudges you i love how 
hardcore you are into this. I have finished the game, watched three speedruns, the world record, 100% completion, and two other speedruns. By the way, the speedruns are anywhere between 20 minutes and two hours long. And watched two streamers Let's Play through the entire game. I'm very into Bubber as you. What I was trying to say in reference to it helping mastery is in getting casual players into being hardcore players because they get addicted to that core gameplay loop that feeds them dopamine constantly. And because it reinforces the learning, they learn the core systems of the game really well. And that allows them to start learning the other subsystems or the hidden layers of the game. Keeps them going. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. In Artemis Project, which is my favorite dice placement game, it's got a really clever core system for placing your dice. Basically, you roll your dice, you place them like they're workers at different spots and you get different benefits. And the core system is super good and super interesting. And that hooked me immediately. And so I played that game a whole bunch. And then as I played the game more, I started to pick up on more subtle ways you can use the dice just using the core mechanics of the game, but in deeper ways. There's a bidding system. If you place a die onto a building, you are bidding that amount on that building. Or rather, critically, you have the opportunity to bid on the item for that amount. And the reason why it's the opportunity is because when you get that far in the round, maybe you didn't get enough resources to actually be able to pay for it. So you can do it on spec. But what that means is I can place a one on there and then on my next turn, if nobody else has played on there, I could play a six. And what that means is six is the highest a die will go. No one can outbid me. So when it comes to actually paying for things, first I have a six, I'm not gonna pay for it. And then I get to actually pay with the one. So that's a really deep use of the system that doesn't come up super often, but is the right move some amount of the time. And it's not that that's a thing that people are going to pick up on quickly, but because I was so into the core systems of the game because they had such a tight dopamine release, that allowed me to focus on that, learn that well, enjoy that, and then start to learn the more obscure strategies and techniques. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I still tie it back to Barbara's You. <laughs> that sounds like the Barbara's You experience. It's a great game. It's so good. The reason why gambling is so fun when working for a consistent paycheck is much less fun is because you have a lot of anticipation. I think if at workplaces, instead of just handing you a piece of paper at the end of the day, if every day they have like a big jar that fills up sort of squid game style of money <laughs> that you're going to get at the end of the paycheck period, and you bring home that giant fishbowl of money, I think that would actually feel really good to do. <laughs> so you're going to suggest random payments? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you could like basically incorporate a small amount of gambling into that, that would also be super addictive. Like if 10% or 5% of everyone's paycheck went into like a pool that randomly paid out slightly different amounts. One person got. <laughs> I'm not suggesting gambling. I do not condone gambling. I'm just saying gambling is fun. And if you don't do it, you won't get as much dopamine. <laughs> so let, let's, let's talk about that. Um, not getting anything at all or, or getting a much lower payment. I've, I've heard studies say that like that is more addictive than constantly winning. Yes. In fact, I wish I could remember the number, but yes, there's like magical ratios. And it, I'm sure it depends on a number of really subtle factors, both as an individual human with a unique brain and on the context surrounding this. But yes, the amount that you want to succeed or the amount that you feel good for gain success 
versus the not success has a negative ratio. You are going to enjoy it more if it's less likely because it's a bigger surprise. And the amount of dopamine that's released is tied not to how big the reward is. It's tied to A, anticipation that we talked about earlier, but B, it's tied to the difference between your expectation and result, which is why when you go to, I say you in the abstract, obviously. Ye. When ye go. When ye go to, <laughs> when ye go to yon old gas station <laughs> to buy a scratcher, you're pretty sure you're not going to get anything. You spend your five or 10 bucks or whatever, you get your scratcher, you scratch it, and you're like, yeah, I didn't get anything, whatever. That's what you expected. So it doesn't feel bad because it's what you expected. But then that one in 20 or one in 50 time that you do get, you're like, oh, wow, that feels really good because I wasn't expecting this at all. And then I got a prize. And it feels better than if someone one day just randomly walked up to you and handed you that prize because there's the anticipation and the ritual. Yes. And to add on top of this, the amount of the reward matters so much less than people think. What you were talking about earlier is some of your older versions of your games, you build up to a really big prize. That matters so much less than getting lots of little prizes, as I said before. But to give you an example, the amount that someone would enjoy getting $1,000 is, say, 70 points. And if you gave them $10,000, you might think, okay, you'd be like 10 times as happy, 700 points of happy. But no, it's actually really small incremental difference. It's like a logarithmic scale. <laughs> yeah. You want to really emphasize that people are getting things a lot. And remember, as well, we've talked before, if one bad thing happens to you that's going to bring you down, in order to bring you back up to that point, you'd have to have about 10 equivalent things to bring you back up to that. And that has to do with loss aversion and other stuff that we've talked about a little bit before. But isn't that the opposite of what you were saying? Where like, if you buy a scratch ticket every week... No, because that's not a bad thing happening to you. That's an expected result. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. A bad thing would be an unexpected bad result. This is where you see people hate dice games because there's a one in six chance that they fail. And other than that, it's lots of good stuff. So that one in six feels awful. And that's the thing that they really take away from that. Right. I think of like Dungeons and Dragons where like in 3.5 and, and earlier, which is, which is my era of Dungeons and Dragons... A natural one is an automatic fail. A natural 20 is automatic success. Are you saying that they would have done better without the one being a fail? Well, so that's a really interesting example. In this particular case, it's different because D&D is fundamentally a storytelling game, A, and B, because the results are gradient. If you have five successes, one fail, it's going to feel awful to hit the fail because you expect it to be successful. And in fact, in video games, they often rig the numbers. Like in XCOM, they famously will say you have a 90% chance to hit this enemy. And you actually have like a 98 or 99% chance to hit the enemy because it feels like it's unfair when you had a 90% chance and you didn't actually get it. And the inverse is also true. That's what I'm trying to say. Gotcha. Right before this call, I was working on Voyage, which is a game that we're hopefully doing in Q3 next year. And... In the current version, this will change so much by the time it comes out, but in the current version, there are resource dice and you go to spaces, work placement spaces, place a worker, roll the dice. And the options are like the five base resources or the super special resource, gold in this version, because gold is not only the most valuable, but also can be used as a wild. So you always want gold. It's never a bad thing. And I was playing with DVD, who's a fellow Jellybean employee, and they were saying that is it fair to have that on a resource die? Because if one person just keeps on rolling it, they're going to get ahead. And I, I was like, well, we'll keep it in. And even when DVD got this result a lot, 
I was still like, good on them. Like that, that's great for them. When I rolled and didn't get it, I, I didn't feel loss aversion. When they got it and I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, this sucks. I really, you know, it's not fair that they get it. I think that has to do with it not being, it not belonging to you. Like it did, loss aversion has to do with you losing things, right? And I see what DVD was saying about losing the opportunity to do things, but I think it feels very different from me handing you something and then taking it away than the other. There was an experiment, and I believe this was covered on Ludology. This is where I heard it originally. They would have people come in to do a fake test, you know, psychology experiments. But at the start of the test, they'd say, just as a thank you, here's either a chocolate bar or mug. They gave half one, half the other. Who wants half a mug? <laughs> that was good. So at the end of the experiment, they would say, do you want to swap it? We actually have, and then they'd offer them the opposite. So the people who had mugs, they would say, do you want to swap it for a chocolate bar? And then people who had a chocolate bar, they would say, do you want to swap it for the mug? Basically, no one wanted to change. So what does that tell us? That tells us that your possession matters a lot. That's the lost version thing we're talking about. Whereas if it's like someone else got a chocolate bar and you got a mug and then later on, like I, I'm not equipped to be able to like go that deep down the rabbit hole with you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I guess my point was just that I didn't feel bad when DVD got gold. And they felt good when they did get gold. So like overall, it was a, a positive. <laughs> right. And that's before you take into account balance and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I, I, I wasn't worried about the dice. Balance and as well personality types, right? Like I've got people who, who, you know, I'll play games with and they will just hate it when anything good happens to anyone else, even if a bunch <laughs> of good things came their way. And I have the opposite. I've got one friend who... All they ever want to do is encourage and make people feel good and say yeah, like... Make everyone have a good time. Yeah, like, look how good you did and look how the things you did. And I only got this way because I got lucky and that type of thing. So like I said at the beginning of this, it gets complicated fast. So that has been dopamine primarily, as well as us touching on endorphins. Now, as we planned from the very beginning, this is going to be a two-parter. Yep, we said that right up front. You'll remember. We said, hello, welcome to the first of our two-parter about brain chemistry. <laughs> I perfectly remember that because of the brain chemicals in my brain. Next episode, we're going to talk about serotonin and oxytocin. And we'll also open that with any feedback from your brain friend. <laughs> my friend with a brain, all one of them. Now, this is the only part of the episode we're allowed to have fun. So, AJ, what have you got prepared for us? What oxytocin have you got ready for our serotonin? Oh, it hurts. <laughs> I learned a lot. <laughs> I've got a simple one for us today. If you were an emoji, what emoji would you be? So I have a custom made emoji of me. Am I allowed to choose that? What? <laughs> First of all, I need to see that immediately. And second of all, no, you have to pick something else. So anyone listening to this, head into the Jellybean Games Discord. There'll be a link in the show notes and go into the Fun Problems channel and you will see my little pixel head emoji. All right, so now you have to pick one that's like standard. So the one that I use the most and the one that I love the most is definitely the like winky kiss emoji. I just love it. It's just so <laughs> flirty. I love being flirty. I use it with everyone all the time. It's like kind of jokey. That is by far my favorite emoji. That definitely fits you for sure. <laughs> I think the emoji that best describes me is 100% no question, the smiley face with like the bead of sweat running down it. Uh, just like yeah, I can nervous that. laughter like anxious smiling <laughs> yeah that was me 100% <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the episode a little teaser for next time we're going to be talking about Robotopia if you want a little preview about the design process I've actually been posting daily design diaries on Board Game Geek so just search for Robotopia on Board Game Geek 
and you can find my extensive design diaries about the creation of Robotopia, which I've very much enjoyed putting together and I've done positive feedback on. So check those out. That's all for this time. I have a Patreon now. So if you go to patreon.com slash Peter C. Hayward, you can support me as a human. And I update every month with just what I've been up to and all kinds of little thoughts and stuff like that. I'm very proud of it. Go check that out if you want to support me and not AJ. Uh, if you want to support both of us, back Robotopia or Kickstarter. <laughs> Coming out very soon. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. It'll be great. I promise. That's all from us. I've been Peter C. Hayward. I've been AJ Brandon. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at FunProblemsPod or reach us via email at FunProblemsPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. Hooray, we did it. You record that, right?